Hi, listeners. It's Carter, host of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Cold Cases. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, you'll examine a different crime scene each week, follow its subsequent investigation, and discover how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. If you're a true crime fan, this series is for you. Enjoy this exclusive clip from the first episode. If you'd like to finish the episode and hear more, follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, substance abuse, murder, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's 1986. A man stands in the middle of a forest in League City, Texas, underneath a dark and moonless sky. His left hand is wrapped around a beer can. His right cradles a gun. He's hunting. He makes his way through groves of spindly mesquite trees until he reaches a small clearing, a place full of ghosts. The place where his daughter's skeleton was found. The man sits on the grass and lights a cigarette. He's going to wait here as long as it takes until the monster who killed his daughter returns. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're going to a plot of land in League City, Texas. It was once home to nothing more than mesquite trees and an old oil rig, but a series of violent crimes turned it into a haunted landmark. Now, it's known as the Texas Killing Fields. About halfway between Houston and Galveston is the small town of League City, Texas. In the early 1980s, it's still relatively undeveloped. There are thousands of acres of grasslands interspersed by a few tight-knit neighborhoods. It's here you'll find a plot of land that seems innocuous. Patchy grass overrun by weeds, cement culverts cracked and worn away by time, litter thrown absentmindedly by teenagers and construction workers. If you drove past, you'd barely give it a second look. But this particular field haunts the residents of League City because the things that were uncovered there are enough to make anyone's skin crawl. And for one man, the land is emblematic of a kind of pain that few people will ever understand. 
Our story begins in September of 1984, just a few miles away from that grassy plain. Tim and Jan Miller have just moved to League City from Dickinson, another small town about 10 minutes away, with their 16-year-old daughter, Laura. Laura's like a lot of girls in the 80s. She's got a Farrah Fawcett haircut, loves pop music, and is more concerned with her boyfriend than her high school classes. But she's also been struggling a lot lately. Laura has a seizure disorder that's difficult to manage, and it makes her feel like an outcast. Her grades have been suffering, which is why Tim and Jan have decided to move her to a different school district. They're hoping this will be the change Laura needs. A new high school, new friends, new horizons. Still, it doesn't take long for Laura to get homesick. On the morning of September 10th, 1984, all she wants to do is talk to her boyfriend Vernon to hear a familiar and comforting voice. But she can't just call him. The Millers are still in the process of unpacking and they don't have their phone line set up yet. This is before the days of cell phones and widespread internet. The only way for Laura to talk to Vernon is by using a payphone. And the nearest one is outside a small convenience store at the corner of one of the town's busier roads. It's about a mile away. So Laura asks her mom to drop her off there on her way to work. Jan's hesitant, so she promises she'll walk right home after she's done. Jan eventually gives in and drives her to the store. Laura heads to the payphone and dials Vernon's number. Jan waits in the parking lot for a few minutes, thinking she still might have time to drive Laura back home, but Laura waves for her to go. So Jan drives away. When Tim and Jan Miller both get home from work later that afternoon, they expect to see Laura setting up her new bedroom. But she's not there. They assume that Laura met up with her boyfriend Vernon and spent the day with him. But soon after this conversation, Vernon shows up at their front door looking for her. He says he hasn't heard from Laura since she called him from the payphone that morning, which means nobody's seen or spoken to Laura for hours. Tim and Jan go out searching, but Laura's nowhere to be found. Her parents try to rationalize. Maybe Laura's off with friends. She couldn't call because their phone lines aren't set up yet. She'll be home soon. Everything will be fine. But the next morning, there's still no sign of their daughter. Dread starts sinking in. Tim calls local hospitals, wondering if Laura might have had a seizure, but she hasn't been checked in anywhere. Unsure what else to do, he calls the police. They tell him, don't worry, Laura's a teenager, she probably just ran away. Tim insists Laura would never do something like that. Even if she did leave on purpose, she would have taken her seizure medication with her, but it's still sitting on the bathroom counter at home. The officers aren't convinced. They assure Tim his daughter will come back before long. From the perspective of the police, this is a pretty reasonable conclusion. According to recent data from the National Center for Missing and Endangered Children, the vast majority of missing kids, around 90%, turn out to be runaways. That's the trend, but it's not always the truth. Tim can't shake the feeling that something terrible has happened to his daughter. He starts looking into recent crimes in League City, 
and comes across a story that chills him to the core. Five months earlier, in April 1984, a family was spending a spring afternoon outside when their dog ran up to them. He was carrying something big, round, and off-white in its mouth. A human skull. The family called the police. Officers fanned out in search of the rest of the skeleton, and they found it. A few hundred yards away, in a small oil field off Calder Road. The bones belonged to a woman. Her ribs were broken. There were clothes nearby, but not on the body, which made police think the woman might have been raped. All this led the medical examiner to rule the death a homicide. Using dental records, police confirmed it was the body of a woman who'd gone missing six months prior, Hedy Fye. Before her disappearance, Hedy was a 25-year-old cocktail waitress who lived in League City with her parents and her six-year-old daughter. Their home was less than a quarter mile from where the Millers would eventually move. In October of 1983, Hedy told her dad she was going to hitchhike to Houston to see her boyfriend. She left, and a little while later, an employee at the local convenience store watched Hedy make a call on the payphone outside. The same payphone Laura would eventually use. And that's the last time anyone saw Hedy. All this happened less than one year before Laura Miller went missing. When Tim hears this story, it's like the floor falls out from beneath him. What if the same thing that happened to Hedy Fye happened to his daughter? He rushes back to the police and tells them he thinks Laura's disappearance might be related to Hedy's murder, but officers aren't interested in his theories. They assure him Laura ran away. She'll come home eventually. Stay calm, be patient, wait. But Tim can't be calm and patient. His daughter is missing. He finds the authorities' lack of urgency infuriating. Laura's been gone for days and he's beyond desperate. He begs the police to at least check the field where Hedy's body was found and see if Laura might be out there. But they refuse. They say the area is fenced in private property, so they can't just search through it. By this point, Tim is ready to take matters into his own hands. He wants to go out and search the area for himself. The problem is he doesn't know the exact location of the field where Hedy's body was found. And the police won't tell him. That information is crucial to Hedy's still unsolved murder, so they can't give out the details. If you've never been to South Texas, you might wonder how locating this field could present such a problem, especially since the discovery of Hedy's body was widely reported in the news. But that small oil field is just one section amongst thousands of acres of land. It's worse than looking for a needle in a haystack. Tim doesn't even know where to start. He feels stuck. Over the following months, he keeps looking for Laura, contacting friends and family, doing whatever he can to track her down. But it's no use. As time continues to pass with no new information, he loses hope. He can't deny his gut instinct that Laura's lying in that oil field just out of his reach. September 10th, 1985, marks one year since Laura disappeared. When the day comes and goes with no leads, 
Tim resigns himself to the idea that his daughter isn't coming home alive. He can't eat, can't sleep, his marriage starts to fracture, his life is falling apart. It goes on like this for a year and a half. By 1986, Tim feels like a danger to himself. So, in February of that year, he checks himself into a hospital. He's hoping to escape the stress of worrying about Laura and to start to recover physically and emotionally. But the troubles in League City are just getting started. On February 2nd, 1986, two boys ride dirt bikes around Calder Road. They race along the gravel trail until a putrid smell stops them in their tracks. They're curious, so they follow the scent. It leads them into an oil field. The grass is all dried up, and the leaves on the mesquite trees are just starting to grow back. That's when they notice it. Beside the trunk of a tree, a woman's partially decomposed body lying face up in the dirt. Officers show up on the scene. They cordon off the area, prepare to transfer the body to a medical examiner for analysis, and do a sweep for additional clues. Then, they make a startling discovery. Thanks for listening. To finish this episode and hear more, be sure to follow Cold Cases for free only on Spotify. Catch a new episode every Monday.